Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from sunny, dry, cold Provo. We also have Chris Ferdinandi. Hey, vanilla JavaScript guy here from um, cold but wet Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Um, I actually released on Facebook and YouTube a few episodes of The DevRev. So that's that's a new show. Uh, so far, it's just me. And uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, we have two special guests. We have Phil Hawksworth. Hello from merry old England. And Divya Sasidaran. Hello from Chicago. This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Do you, since you're not regulars on the show, want to quickly introduce yourselves? Yeah, sure. Um, Phil, do you want to start? Oh, okay. Oh, I was, I was letting you go for it, but uh, okay, you've <laughs> thrown the gauntlet to me. That's fine. So, uh, so hi, yeah, I'm Phil Hawksworth. I'm joining you from just outside London, and I work in the DevRel team at a company called Netlify, where we do like a variety of things to do with uh, hosting websites and running builds and doing build automation. And we're, we're trying, trying to push the, uh, what we're thinking is a, a modern way of building sites and getting them hosted in the way that takes some of the grief out of your hands as developers and uh, pushes that elsewhere. And we'll try and, try and shoulder that burden. So, uh, so that's, that's what I'm kind of excited about. And I'm Divya Sasidharan. I work with Phil basically every day. <laughs> we're on different time zones, but we try to make it work. And pretty much what Phil says, I'm a developer advocate, which is what he does as well, which involves um, talking about the Jamstack and talking about Netlify at various events, meetups, and conferences. So we both, between the two of us, actually have a lot of frequent flyer miles, I think. <laughs> yeah, and ultimately, we were struggling to get some meeting time. So we thought this would be the best way to, for us to get some time face to face. Awesome. Well, and, and I, I don't get the opportunity to talk to Divya very often, so... I've known Divya for years and I've even practiced saying your last name and I just hearing (laughs) you say it again, I realized I butcher it every single time. I'm so sorry. It's fine. I mean, I appreciate the effort for sure. It's not a big deal. I say it almost every week and I know I'm mispronouncing it, but I, because yeah, when you said it, Divya, same thing, but I wasn't quite sure where I'm missing. So... Oh, my stupid American brain. I'm so sorry. No I think the H throws people off usually, but yeah. Yeah. Wow. So uh, um, if you like hearing from Divya, I just want to quickly plug Views on View. Um, she's a regular on that show with a few other folks that you might know from the show like Joe Eames. So yeah. But uh, let, let's talk about this. So are you still calling it the Jamstack? We did an episode with Brian Douglas and Matt Christensen back in 2016. Oh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. They, they talked about this stuff. We are. We we most certainly are. I think we're we're calling it the Jamstack more than ever. In fact, we just we just had uh, the first official Jamstack conference. Just uh, what was it? Two weeks ago in San Francisco. So yeah, we are definitely still still sticking by this uh, this term Jamstack, and and happily we're not alone. It feels like more and more people are starting to use this term. Lots more kind of companies are getting into this space. We sometimes this is an expression I'm always on uneasy using. We talk mm-hmm. about the Jamstack ecosystem. Uh, I feel like it's kind of sales speak when I say that, but I think it's probably the best way to describe it because there are all of these 
kind of vendors, these tools and services that are now entering the space. So we're not we're not standing alone. There are all kinds of things that you can use when you're building sites to further kind of enrich them, kind of pull content in from APIs, like lots of things like headless CMSs and I don't know, uh, e-commerce systems and all those kind of things. So yeah, it does feel like the jam jam stack is sticking. Well, that's the sentence. I should, <laughs> try. <laughs> you think that's fair, Divya? But yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I think the jam is sticking. Um, oh. <laughs> oh. Ooh, getting corny already. <laughs> I, I just need to go and make um, some t-shirts with these logos. Know, seriously. But similar to what Phil was mentioning, there has, there has been a movement, a collective movement where a lot of companies and technologies are being released, where there's headless CMSs. There are people that are encouraging the separation of your front end and your back end instead of moving towards monolithic applications, which is what used to be a really big thing, like maybe four years ago, four or five years ago. And so uh, like, I think it's starting to grow and the whole idea of Jamstack is trying to bring those communities or that, that all, bring all of the movement together and try to have people talk in a similar vein or like using the same language because there's so many things that people call it. And so us calling it Jamstack is kind of trying to concretize that concept so that we can have more conversations and talk about it in general. So what is Jamstack? Because like, I'm familiar with the term, but I, like, I, I see all the time on Twitter when I talk about it, people are like, Jam what now? Um, so what... You know, for, for someone who's not familiar with this, can you kind of provide a little background? Sure. Shall I, shall I run at this one, Divya? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So, um, so Jamstack, so the JAM in Jamstack stands for JavaScript, APIs, and Markup. That's the J-A-M. And you, know, want, you might once have thought of it as, you know, the new name for static sites, but I, th- I think it goes a bit further than that, as Divya was kind of talking about. We've seen lots of ways of um, building sites with things like static site generators to do pre-rendering so that you're not hitting a web server at the, or you don't need to hit a web server that's going to perform any logic at request time. And it's all about trying to make that stack as simple as possible. So now that browsers can do so much more with JavaScript at the client side, that opens a lot of possibilities up. However, that's not to say that the Jamstack is all about delivering you know, an empty body tag and a blob of JavaScript that then turns into something else. It can be that if you so wish it to. And you know, things like uh, Netlify's admin, like the app, as we call it at Netlify, you know, which is all the tools, which is, you know, it is, it is an admin interface to manage all your builds, look at all your deploys, do all that configuration. That feels like an app, so that is built on React, but it calls a bunch of APIs in the background. But equally, you know, a Jamstack site could be completely pre-rendered and actually not including any JavaScript if you want. But I think a more common model is to use something like a service to abstract the content for content management. So using something like Contentful or Prismic, or there's, there's a bunch of different headless CMS options. And then when you run your build, pulling that data in, churning through some templates to pre-render a site and then getting that out to the CDN as fast as possible. So that's what Netlify does, you know, where, where Divya and I both work. That's, we're all about trying to reduce the friction to deploy so that actually you can redeploy many, many times a day, many times an hour potentially to actually make these, what we might once have called static sites, so much more than static. And you know, by getting to the CDN as fast as possible, you're serving things without having to keep logic running on a web server, so things could potentially fall down when you get, I don't know, slash dotted, or what, what, what's the equivalent these days? <laughs> yeah, the old, uh, what they used to call it fireballs, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hacker news, yeah, that's a good one. Hacker news, that's what I should have said, yeah. yeah. So, so one thing that I'm, I'm wondering about this, because, and, and we, we kind of had a similar conversation, you know, two years ago, but mm-hmm. I, I want to clarify something, because, you know, you're talking about JavaScript APIs and markup, and the APIs is kind of the 
fuzzy space for me, right? I mean, I can build the single page app. I can hook something like, what is it, Firebase up to it? Yeah. Um, you know, or something like that. And, you know, when I have the markup, that seems like a pretty, you know, at least to me, a pretty standard way of writing an application in this style. But if I build my own backend and expose an API, how is that different from a Jamstack? Or is the rest of the app the Jamstack and my backend is my backend? I guess really it's about decoupling. It's about serving UI, your UI layer without having to do any logic there and then potentially enriching it with APIs. It's a, it's a bit of a spectrum. It's a broad spectrum for sure. And you could qualify all kinds of things you know, with the same term really if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. But to be completely honest, it's, it's more of a convenience term. It's more of a, a term to try and help convey it, not just to tech, not technical people, but also to know to marketing folks and people kind of buying the technology in the same way that perhaps progressive web apps you know was was coins uh in in a similar way it's that's a collection of things you know there's no one stack that dictates that it's a progressive web app that could be many many things but it's a convenient term for conveying you know the nature of a site in, in many ways to people so yeah it's it's hard to pin it down completely it's a it's a slippery one at times so the the way i've kind of thought about things is um because I remember when I when I first heard heard the term, I thought it like only involved really interactive kind of sites. But from my perspective, a super simple static blog that does nothing but spit out markup is Jamstack. As is a super highly interactive application that consumes a ton of APIs and generates lots of dynamic content. And I've always thought of the API piece of Jamstack as a way to convey that. Just because these sites are serving static HTML doesn't mean that they have to themselves be static, right? Is that, is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, definitely. I think Phil actually has a talk where he mentions that static sites aren't actually, like the term static, and he was talking to AJ mm-hmm. and I was overhearing, and Phil, you can jump in whenever, but um, just the idea that static is a misnomer because people assume that because a site is static, it's not interactive, which is not mm-hmm. necessarily the case, right? Because... It's static because, yeah, it's solved by a CDN, but you can still create interactivity using JavaScript if you want. And then you can use, like, you can connect your current, well, so-called static site with APIs, like <laughs> Firebase or whatever other services you want to use um, in order to have extra layers that you don't want to build directly into your application. And mm-hmm. so, like you were mentioning, Chris, there's a huge spectrum between what Jamstack means. And Phil talked about this as well, because like a, a site that just serves simple, just plain HTML pages is considered Jamstack. And so is one that's more complex where it has multiple like Lambda functions and like it might call Azure or whatever else things that they, that want to be baked into it. Basically a mouse trap of an application essentially <laughs> um, is still considered Jamstack. <laughs> one thing I just want to throw out here is that I, I saw a little bit of this evolution with uh, Jekyll. So I, I've been in the Ruby community for a long time. Jekyll's a static site generator that people use to make their blogs for, it has probably been around for 10 years or eight years or something. And uh, what what they do is they generate the page, but then they load something in like discuss and they load in like a JavaScript sharing thing. And so, yeah, it, it looked like it was an interactive site. They're just, the databases were just somewhere else. Yeah, precisely. And it's interesting, as Divya was talking, you, you can already hear how quickly we, we get ourselves in trouble when we start using the word static, because, uh, you know, <laughs> listeners to this won't, won't be able to see the air quotes that she was doing as she was doing that. But <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what I find myself doing all the time. And I think the first time I did a talk about this, I think I called it dynamic static site strategies. 
which is just, I mean, a disastrous title for a talk, and it's also just hard to say <laughs> it now. Um, but that, that's kind of evolved over, over a number of years of, you know, from my first experiences, I think, with static site generators was also with, with Jekyll, same, same as you, Chuck. And it, it evolved over a, num- a number of years to start seeing how you could make it, th- make it more dynamic by, as you say, maybe using Discuss for comments or adding some other services. But then more recently, make it more dynamic just by making it very easy to redeploy. You know, I, I, I pushed this kind of example to like a ridiculous degree recently by making a statically generated clock um, where there's no JavaScript running, but it tells you the real time in your, in your time zone because I pre-render it every minute and deploy it to a global CDN every minute of the day. And that happens automatically because the friction in deploying is so low. Now I'm not recommending that that's how we build clocks in the future, but um, uh, but it's kind of an interesting experiment to see how low the friction can be to for regenerating and deploying a site, which keeps it fresh and keeps it anything anything but static. Really, the result. Phil, you should also clarify. You used was it the meta like refresh um, element or something like that? Because the page also will automatically reload itself every I think thirty seconds or so. Yeah, so I, I did exactly that. Yeah, it just uh, it, it reloads every 30 seconds. And hopefully you've just crossed that boundary. And, uh, you know, I have a, a little bit of CSS there that kind of animates the middle of the clock. So it looks like it's ticking, but it's it's just waiting to go and get another version. And then it's, oh, I've, I've been, I've got a new version that's been pre-rendered. And thankfully, the cache is all flush because that's kind of stuff that Netlify mm-hmm. does for you and what have you. But But yeah, that's the key, I think. Making deploying and publishing as simple as possible and a, like a bit of a no-brainer so that sites that are pre-generated can feel really dynamic. And that's kind of the, the nub of the Jamstack, I guess. So there's, there's two areas I really wanted to explore with you, but the first one may be a little bit more of a kind of a low-hanging fruit. One of the big resistance pieces I see to using Jamstack is... Um, largely from audiences of people like me who feel really strongly about progressive enhancement and making sure that even if JS fails, stuff still loads. So they hear the, the JavaScript part of Jamstack and they go, oh, so you're just sending me a blank HTML file and building it with JS. And I know that can be a, a Jamstack site, but does it have to be? And like, what, you know, ha- like, so how does JavaScript fit into the Jamstack ecosystem? How much of a role does it play? So I'll take this one because I'm a, I'm a bit of a progressive enhancement nerd as well. I'm, I'm a... <laughs> Huge. I mean, I, I'm so um, passionate about progressive enhancement. I think it's it's critical. <laughs> um, so uh, so I'm with you completely there on that sentiment, Chris. The fact that it's the first letter in the acronym does make it sound like it's the most important part of the puzzle. And I and I think that's a slight misnomer. That's that's probably a, a slight myth that we'll need to bust a little bit. I think that um, delivering as much as possible pre-rendered so that it can get into the browser and into the eyeballs of the user as fast as possible with few um, failure points as possible is always key. And I think it comes down to what type of site are you are you building? What kind of experience do you need? So, you know, I already mentioned the the admin site for Netlify itself is a, is a very rich application. And it, I think it's a reasonable scenario there to build it as an application where actually JavaScript is a requirement because it's a, it's a limited audience, a sophisticated tool, really. You might imagine it is replacing what might have once been a native application hosted locally on a, you know, a suite of servers. Whereas 
news sites and uh, blog. I mean, blogs is the classic example. There are so many sites that live on WordPress at the moment that hit a database every time you know a page is requested. And I think we can do away with that, and we can do away with that in a way that doesn't depend on JavaScript running in the client. So for, I, I always think that finding the right baseline to progressively enhance from is a critical part of your technical design decisions when you're thinking about how to build a site. And that applies equally here in Jamstack. It's just that you, you're right, the term JavaScript, APIs and markup, does lend itself to thinking that it's, it's JavaScript-led, but that doesn't have to be the case. Well, it's also the tool that a lot of us instinctively reach for first. Indeed, yeah, both both in the client and on the server. So mm-hmm. I kind of flit around from one static site generator to the other as I'm kind of exploring them and seeing, you know, seeing what are interesting tools to play with. And the ones that I find myself gravitating to most tend to use some form of JavaScript, you know, JavaScript in some shape or form as the static site generator. So even if I'm not delivering JavaScript at, to the client, often I'm using those in my build environment. So uh, and that's just because that's the tool I'm happy with. Speaking of which, I, I just want to take a second to plug um, the new kid on the block in static site generators, 11D, by our mutual buddy, Zach Leatherman. Um, I know you guys have been making heavy use of it at Netlify, um, but it is a JavaScript-oriented static site generator that has a lot of flexibility and some really great templating. I don't happen to... It was still kind of being developed when I made the jump to static. So I'm currently running Hugo, but um, I've played around with it and it's just, it's awesome. So if, if you're exploring options, I definitely recommend checking that one out. Yeah, I love that as well. I have to say, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that we use it a lot at Netlify. I think that's mostly me. I think... I think uh, it's mostly I th- you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just a bit of a big mouth and I really love it. But I think at Netlify, it's probably fair to say that we're pretty agnostic to the static uh-huh. generators. We use, we use Hugo ourselves on our own kind of, you know, our .com uh, uh-huh. and our doc site. Uh, we use something called static, uh, React Static for some of the other sites we run, things like Static Gen. Uh, mm-hmm. com, which is in itself is a list of lots of different static site generators. We use Gatsby for some things. Uh, so we use all sorts of, uh, Divi is obviously a big uh, proponent of Vue. We've, we've got all kinds of things being being used. It's just that I must admit, I personally am really enjoying 11T as well. <laughs> nice. Um, so the, the second letter in Jamstack, A, um, One of the things that's been fresh on my mind, because I just got through wrapping up um, my latest Vanilla JavaScript Academy, and one of the things we spend a fair bit of time talking about is working with APIs. And in particular, kind of one of the pain points with JavaScript and APIs is when you have APIs that have keys and secrets or require some sort of authentication that you don't want to kind of put out in the world. And with a, a database kind of oriented system. Like if I'm, if I'm running WordPress, it's, I don't want to say trivial, but you know, my approach would be to then store those credentials somewhere in the database and make a server-based API call. But when I'm rocking a static site and I'm doing a lot of that work through JavaScript, it becomes a lot fuzzier. And I know kind of, I've come up with some creative ways to approach this, but from your perspective, what's the best way to kind of handle that? I have credentials I don't want to expose publicly, but I need them to get the content I want to kind of sprinkle on top of my existing markup. Yeah, that, that's a really compelling use case. Uh, that's very real, a real world example. But there, there are multiple ways for you to do it. So if you were to use Netlify, you can actually add your credentials directly into 
your app. So when you do your deploy, there's a place for like adding environment variables. And so if you put them within that, whenever the site deploys, if you have string interpolation within your app, Netlify is able to plug those in. So you have your environment variables like automatically set. Um, There's other ways for you to do that. So um, Netlify has an identity feature called like go auth. So it allows you to essentially just plug and play like via an API or the A in Jam to your application. So you have a static site and you want it to just add authentication and there's this ability for you to do so. And you can do it via like actually writing the whole thing yourself. So creating the UI around authentication and handling that request as it goes through. Or you can do it with, there's a Netlify widget or an authentication widget, which allows you to just drop in and it has a user interface already built in. And then you you have ability for like social login and so on that's already built into it. So it's similar actually to AuthO's solution or Okta's solution to creating authentication without you having to deal with anything on the server on your own because it's just, you're using pre-existing solutions. So all you have to do is just like, hook those in, and then the service takes care of it yourself, which I think is the, the probably the easiest way to do it, just so that for you, you can focus on building your web application rather than like mm-hmm. having to build a server just for authentication purposes. Yeah, and so like, I guess to... To give you like a real, real world example. So I, I love MailChimp as a newsletter provider, but one of the things they do that drives me nuts is if, you know, I, I make heavy use of segmentation. So like I have my newsletter, but then you can also sign up to just get notifications for some other like new thing I'm offering. And if you're already a member of my newsletter and you go to kind of sign up for that other thing through their form, it'll say like, oh, hey, you're already signed up. You need to click here to like update your preferences. And it's just a weird user experience. So I like to use their API to kind of just automatically control that stuff. But if I put my API credentials in the front end, then someone can access all of my subscribers and delete people and do all sorts of stuff that I wouldn't want them to do. So I've set up a kind of like a middleman server that I ping with my JavaScript that then makes the API call for me and sends back some kind of like watered down response based on that. That sounds like something maybe a little bit different than what Netlify's GoAuth offering provides. So is there some other like better thing you would do this with? Like I've, I've heard a lot about, and I know Netlify bakes some stuff in here around like serverless and AWS kind of Lambda functions and things like that. But a lot of that is just totally over my head at this point. You you said uh, you said exactly you said exactly the word. I'm so glad that you introduced a new buzzword into the conversation. After you know, <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about this because I'm yeah. trying to balance like I don't know my I I love the performance gains I've gotten from my static site, but it, certain things are more complicated than I'd I'd like. Other things are way easier than working yeah. with WordPress, but or some other sort of server based templating system. But some stuff is a little bit harder, um, and this happens to be one of them. Yeah, and and you you called out the perfect example. I mean, the so the things that Divya was talking about there, where we can stash your credentials and your secrets so that we can access them safely at build time when we run your build. That makes perfect sense. But when when it comes to the kind of scenario that you're talking about, hitting an API, you know, through the client, you don't want to have those secrets in the client. That's exactly when you you want some kind of little little bit of logic somewhere on a server, which is sounds like that's what you've built. That's the perfect use case for a serverless function. So. So as you mentioned, it can be a bit intimidating going and setting up AWS Lambda to to write a function that effectively proxy these calls for you. And that's something that we at Netlify have been working hard to kind of simplify because we absolutely believe that serverless functions or functions as a service, as I I, I find sometimes gets me into less trouble describing. Much better it. definition, yeah. Right. Um, so um, using those 
can really add this extra layer to Jamstack sites that makes them viable for so many more things. So effectively, you know, if you write a serverless function, which is in essence just a single JavaScript function where you can invoke it and that request can then grab your credentials in a secure environment because they're not running in the client, they're running in the cloud somewhere where your users don't get to see the code. They can make that request on your behalf to whatever service and then return the response to the client on your behalf. So you effectively build out that server proxy layer that you're talking about, but you do that in just a single function. You don't have to maintain a server for that. A cloud hosting provider does all that for you. And so at Netlify, what we've done is we've made it so that you can write these serverless functions and keep them as part of your code base that, you know, that runs your, your UI layer. And yeah. we will, when you deploy that, we will deploy it to AWS on your behalf. We'll set up all the permissions. We'll expose the API endpoint for that. And we'll make it relative to the root of your domain. So that then you get access to this straight away without having to deploy anything to AWS. So you, you don't even need an AWS account. So that makes writing a serverless function way simpler than it was before. And then you can start to have this kind of server logic layer, just filling the gaps where you really, really need to do a little bit more than you can do with something which is mm -hmm. static. And then it opens the gates to all kinds of other things. Now, I've always found the documentation for that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chuck. I've, I've I, I'm just curious, Chris. Um, yeah. Have you actually played with serverless much? No. Well, so this is where I was going to kind of, the thing that's really held me off is um, I've tried to get started with AWS Lambda a few times. Um, I've also poked around at Netlify's docs when they first unveiled this feature. And it's always been written for people who are a little bit more backend technical than I am. Um, uh -huh. And uh, I've like, I've dug through examples and tried to figure out what's going on. And, and I've always just kind of hit this wall of like, well, I don't know what to do, but I do know how to spin up WordPress on a server and, and ping an API there. So I'm just going to do that instead. And, uh, yeah, I, but I'm just, I, I'm so sick of maintaining my own server. Like I don't want to do it anymore. Well, it's funny. You mentioned, I have two thoughts on what you said. First of all, setting up Lambda of all of the serverless options out there, Lambda, Azure Functions, Lambda is by far the most complicated one to set up. But it, <sighs> That's uh, always the one I hear about, though. Right? Yeah. yeah. So Azure Functions, uh, I think IBM has a serverless solution. So you can look at some of the other ones that are a little less involved. And in fact, if you install the Azure plugin for Visual Studio Code, you can actually test and deploy your functions from VS Code. And it, it really makes it a whole lot easier. The other wow. thing to keep in mind is the serverless NPM library. Also, it makes Lambda a lot easier too, because it'll, it'll auto, automatically do a lot of that garbage for you. Um, so you. You just give it access and it does it. The most confusing thing about AWS Lambda has just been configuring API Gateway, yes. which is usually... So like I, I've dealt with AWS Lambda because I, I want to write... I have an Alexa. She's going <laughs> to she's gonna try to talk now. Um, <laughs> And um, I, I've tried to write a skill and had to deal with API Gateway, which is always like a complete pain to deal with. And so actually Chuck was mentioning Azure's extension for Microsoft VS Code is actually really cool. And I worked with it before to deploy and work with a, like serverless functions using Azure. And it's really smooth and straightforward. Netlify also has like, Chris, I'm sorry, your experience wasn't was subpar. Oh, this was like, I mean, you literally, it was like, it was in beta. It had just come out. And that's the last yeah. time. Yeah. So it's actually improved a lot since then, because the idea of it is that if you have a functions folder in your, wherever you're, whenever you deploy a Netlify project, if you have a functions folder, 
where you're, you basically export a single JavaScript function where you want your thing to do whatever else. So you're okay. like, hey, go call Firebase, go call like Auth0, mm-hmm. whatever. You could easily have that. And then every time Netlify knows whenever you deploy your app that there is a function that exists. And so you can easily call that quite quickly and you don't really have to do anything else. Like you don't have to configure like what Phil was saying. You don't have to configure Amazon, like AWS. You don't have to deal with anything and like we do all of the work for you. All you have to do is write the logic for what you want your function to do and like what other packages that you want included within it. There is like additional, a little bit of an overhead when it comes to dependencies, which is something that we're working on at Netlify, which is that if you have a specific function that has dependencies, the best way to prevent clashes in dependencies when you have multiple functions that have dependencies that don't work well together is to Mm -hmm. zip up your function. So you have like your functions folder and then you can have a folder within that. That's like a zip file essentially of like your package.json and node modules and everything. So it's a pre, it's just like a pre-packaged thing that Netlify can then run um, because that tends to be an issue sometimes um, where Mm -hmm. Lambda or yeah, Lambda will time out if the thing doesn't work as expected. And I okay. think the, I forget what the timeout is, Phil. Do you know what it is? I forget off the top of my head. I think, and I think it's just yeah. been extended as well. So I it was that's two numbers. I don't last know. Last time I I checked, but I'll have to check on that number. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Chris, when you're talking about just apart from just the workflow of getting it started, just like would love some simple boilerplate code that you know that you could try and then stick on a ser- stick on a server. There's no server, Phil. <laughs> um, and, uh, no, there's a server somewhere. You just don't. It's got to be one somewhere. But it's it's not in my house. That's all I know. I don't have to worry about it. But yeah, you want you want to just have you know a bit of code that you can push somewhere and then have a hello world. Our colleague David Wells, who uh, works a lot on our functions uh, part of the product, who actually used to work at Serverless, the the framework you you, you mentioned, Chuck. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he's been building out lots of examples for this. And the, there's I don't know, do, can we share show notes and like links later on for people? Because yeah, we yeah. just put them in the chat and they wind up in the show notes. Cool. Okay. Well, I've been throwing things in there. So there is a useful kind of functions playground hosted on Netlify, which has a bunch of these examples, and you can. I'm looking at this right now, and damn, this would have been helpful like a, yeah. a year ago when I was like first exploring different options. Because yeah, I can see now you just you throw some stuff in an environment file and use fetch to grab some stuff, and you're off to the races. This is um, this is awesome. Your uncle, as you might say in England. Um, yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's one of those the thing that people overlook with this as well that I that got me really excited when I was joining Netlify back in December last year. This was just going through development at this at that stage, and um, I got a demo of it that got me really excited because one of the benefits of this approach that we've been pushing this Jamstack approach is whenever you do a deployment, you're creating an immutable deploy that you push out to a CDN, and that means that you know we're not mutating the state of a server so that it's hard to unpick that and roll back. Every deployment that you make stays there in perpetuity, so you can always roll back. Now it's one click of a button to roll back to a previous version of your UI. Now that's great and it gives you that kind of freedom. But if you're building a UI that talks in turn to an API layer that maybe you've built on some serverless functions, for example, keeping those in step can be a bit tricky. That's what we were trying to solve. So now when you're writing these functions that you can see this kind of some examples in this functions playground, if you're writing these functions and keeping them as part of your repo as well, and they're linked to your deployment and they're linked to, it's all based on Git, 
every version that you push, every deployment that you push, not only is updating your UI, but it's also updating your API layer. It's also you know, doing an immutable deploy to AWS Lambda behind the scenes on your behalf. So your UI and your APIs that are hosted on serverless functions perfectly stay in step. So you can do kind of branch deploys that have different features built out. You can do A-B testing across them. That all just happens as part and parcel of this workflow. So you don't have this kind of fractured workflow where you're controlling your UI layer and then wrangling with this workflow to deploy for serverless functions. It's all part and parcel of the same thing. That got me really excited when I saw that for the first time because it can be hard to stitch those things together. So that's something that I think is pretty nice about this approach. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. One thing that I'm I'm running into is devchat.tv has kind of a, as far as the hosting and application goes, has kind of an interesting history where I think we started out with different WordPress installations for each show. And then eventually I pulled them all together into one WordPress installation. And then I farmed it back out so that it was a Rails application. And then I pulled it back into WordPress. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking in a lot of ways that this would really simplify a lot of things because I, I get really tired of maintaining WordPress. And so I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, there are some things that I would have to move around and, and I'm sure that, you know, there are ways to shift some of that stuff. But if you already have a website that's built on a CMS, how do you convert it to a static site? Static site's a dirty word here. I I actually wrote some documentation on that if you're so inclined, Chuck, because I went through this process a few months ago. I will. will How do I jam my stack? Or how do I jam up my stack? (laughs) Yeah. And like Phil, I don't know if if you guys have tools for that, but I I, I kind of strung together a whole bunch of things to make it work. I'd love to hear what, uh, what you both think. I mean, it's a it's a fairly uh, regular question, I must admit, and it can be challenging for sure. M- migrating from one stack to another is always challenging. There's a great post that I often seem to reference when asked this question by Stefan Baumgartner, which again, I'll, I'll share the link to that in just a second, where you know, he's looking at using, I think he's using middleman for his static site generator, but he, you know, he's got users who are um, admins who are used to using WordPress as the backend. So he started using WordPress content APIs to, to scoop the content out of WordPress, but we're still hosting WordPress as an admin tool for, you know, for users to author the content. But either way, that gets you to a stage where you're exporting content from WordPress, ingesting them in stru- as structured data. And then once you're in that world, then you can do what you like with that data. So that means yeah. that you can stash all of that content as different files in your Git repository. And then from there, you can manipulate it and move from one static site generator to the other. But, but I think that's, that's a big key for, for WordPress sites. Being able to expose content through the content APIs is a big one. Was that what you were doing, Chris? No. Well, so I did. Um, no. So I I don't. Um, I actually 
I don't want to say I ditched WordPress entirely because I still use it for my checkout process, but my front end is entirely marked down and Hugo driven at this point. The most intensive part of the so whole thing nice. for me was, uh, was porting over. That would over be my- so nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Chuck, it's, it's totally doable. Um, I, I popped some links for the show notes um, that document my process, but the most intense process was literally porting over my theme, just kind of like mapping what I had from a visual layout before into the templating structure. Uh, in my case, it was Hugo, but even if you went with like Jekyll, Eleventy, whatever you end up going with, like, you know, I had all these like WordPress hooks and loops and things that like didn't apply in the new system. So kind of figuring that out was literally the hardest part. The, um, depending on which CMS you go with, there may or may not be dedicated export your content out tools. Hugo has an exporter plugin, but it doesn't actually work. Jekyll has one as well. And the kind of the front matter related to the static thing is more or less identical. So I just use that. It spat out, you know, hundreds of markdown files that I dragged and dropped into the content directory for Hugo. And uh, then I also downloaded my WordPress content uploads directory from like an FTP server and uh, just dropped that in as well so that all of those kind of links were preserved. And that was honestly basically it. I mean, I did some data cleanup. I removed some short codes and things like that kind of using, I used Sublime's like find in all files in this folder feature to, to hunt those down. But um, the content migration piece was for me the easiest part of the whole thing. And then then from there, I just uh, kind of set up this thing where every time I push a new, a new change to my GitHub repository, it auto builds and publishes the latest thing, which I did manually because I, I still needed that, that WordPress hosted server. So I'm still kind of running my own setup. But one of the things that I really wanted to use Netlify for was that piece of it, because uh, Phil Divya, correct me if I'm wrong, but your service handles that automatically, right? You like you publish a new thing and it just shows up. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess that's the other thing is, is that we tend to schedule our releases in advance. mm -hmm. So um, Phil, you and I have talked about this before a little bit. Has Netlify come up with a good way to handle that yet? I think last time you were recommending Zapier for that. I have a, um, like a GitHub web web hook and a custom PHP script that does it for me on my kind of self-hosted thing. But, um, you know, what do you do when folks want that on Netlify? Yeah, we we still don't have an integrated uh, tool for scheduling builds, although it, it's interesting, it does come up reasonably often. We now have an official integration with Zapier to make these things simpler. The alternative to that, of course, is, uh, I say, of course, the alternative to that is using something like uh, webtask.io, which gives you access to do like cron um, mm-hmm. builds. And I like using that in conjunction with a build hook in Netlify. So every one of your sites, you can create effectively an inbound webhook which whenever you call that with a post request, that will kick off a build for you. So the, quite a few people have um, built that out so that the logic of their build will see the published date maybe in the front matter of their posts. And if the build is run at, you know, at a certain time, then that will publish. Mm-hmm. And then you can have something like WebTask calling that build you know, every hour or so or what have you, or you can <laughs> trigger it from other things. But at the moment, no, we don't have a, we don't have a scheduler. I think mm-hmm. there have been quite a few discussions about that, but I don't know where that might be on our pipeline. Yeah. And that's, you know, Chuck, just to kind of ultimately answer your question, that's, that's effectively what I have. I have a cron job that runs once an hour and just literally rebuilds the site on the server for me. And as long as the current post date I have set on the thing is at or after the time that this build is running, it shows up on the front end. Otherwise it's kind of kept in not published mode and it's worked, worked pretty well for me so far, but it did involve just to like a small amount of setting up, I will tell you it is leagues and, and like leaps and bounds easier than um, 
not necessarily scheduling things in WordPress, but a lot of the other WordPress stuff that was really difficult is just so much easier and static. Well, I'm pretty sure too that I, I use Zapier pretty heavily and I'm pretty sure that they have a every day at this time or yeah. every so often, whatever it is. And so I could right. just set it up to deploy yeah, yeah every morning at, at a certain time. And so, yeah, as long as I have some way of filtering it by date, shouldn't be a big deal. Exactly. And Chuck, going back to the other part of your question about like migrating from one one platform to another, I should also recommend another post by the same chap, actually, Stefan Baumgartner. He wrote a great article on Smashing Magazine, which was about um, like some lessons learned at using a static site generator at scale. I think the company he was working for at the time had you know many tens of thousands of pages in many languages for the documentation that they were building on for their product, I think. And they moved across from a stack that had you know lots of servers involved to a static site build, but they didn't want to just flip everything over at once. So they identified a few parts of the site, first of all, that they could render out as static and created those. And then they used like a little proxy layer in front that said, okay, everything goes to the static site, unless it's one of these URLs, in which case go through to our traditional stack. So they kind of put this layer in front. And so there's a nice uh, post on doing that. And that's becoming quite a popular technique uh, just to just to kind of filter the traffic and turn it one place or another. So you can gradually migrate away from a big stack rather than having to do it as a big ban. Yeah, but there's also, it looks like a Jekyll exporter plugin for WordPress. And so... Yeah, that's, that's what I use, Chuck, to get all my data out. It doesn't even matter if you use Jekyll or not. Um, the front matter between most of these services is more or less identical. So I used it to drop my content into Hugo uh, and didn't really have to change a thing. There's also like, I think, multiple resources and videos. Like I posted one that... So one of the big projects that Netlify has worked on was moving Smashing Magazine from WordPress to using something like the Jamstack. And Smashing is a huge use case because they have so many pages. And they also have additional functionality. Going back to like the static dynamic thing, they have a checkout workflow a uh, checkout flow because they you buy things on Smashing or you pay for a subscription. Mm-hmm. And then they have forms that you fill in so you can get on the mailing list and so on, some other things. And all of that is now being moved over from WordPress to using the Jamstack. And that's like a pretty big use case. I put a link in the show notes that might help a little bit to give you some context around that. Yep. I, I, I'm just trying to figure out how much work it'll be. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck, it took me probably, and again, I don't, I don't know how kind of expansive your WordPress setup is, but it took me maybe like three or four days to kind of make the whole switch. But since then, I have not had to update a single plugin, worry right. about patches, breaking backwards compatibility on stuff. I just write a markdown file, hit git push and call it a day. Um, yeah, I think, I think the things that have hung me up the most and, and, I, I feel like I've hijacked the conversation a little bit, but at the same time, I mean, these are things that we're dealing with, whether we have a WordPress website or an Express website or something else, right? You move from something dynamic to something that at least is um, semi-static, you know, on the Jamstack. And and so we're talking about real trade-offs. For sure. Yeah. No, that's that's fair. The The toughest thing for me beyond just kind of like literally like porting the theme over into a new templating system was figuring out how to handle some of those pre-existing or previously dynamic things like newsletter signups and, you know, like simple, simple kind of stuff like that. Actually, uh, Phil, one of the things you and I talked a lot about was setting up e-commerce and 
I, for the life of me, could not figure out how to make GoCommerce work at the time. Again, just a level of backend expertise needed to understand the documentation kind of thing. So I just kind of kept that piece running on WordPress. I'd at some point love to move to, I'd literally love to just move to letting Netlify handle everything. But um, like there's certain things, Chuck, that honestly, I, I just, I keep running on kind of a traditional server somewhere. And I still use WordPress for a few things because they have so many helper functions that make things really easy. But I've, I've set mine up as headless, so you can only interact with it through API. Right. So like you can never visit a front end for it or anything like that. Yeah. And, and at the risk of um, me getting sacked by my employees at Netlify, you don't need to put all of your eggs in the Netlify basket either. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, you're quite right, Chris, that there are a bunch of libraries that Netlify actually built as part of that project with Smashing and then open sourced them so other people could use them. Mm-hmm. And you uh, referring to one of them there but there are other services as well so you know i, I kind of um shyly talked about the jamstack ecosystem earlier on and there are companies like snipcart which can also really help with this kind of thing and there's there's a bunch of others that will allow you to do e-commerce in the front end now these are dependent on javascript i should be i should be clear about that mm-hmm. um but but it, again it's once again it's one of those things that can you live with having e-commerce as a progressive enhancement on your site? And how do you design the baseline that that sits uh, on top of? But I mean, to be fair, even on a database system, Phil, that's that's the case. Like, like if I want to use Stripe or PayPal, I need JavaScript on or they both fail. So, you know, you could see yeah. my stuff and not buy it. I don't know if that's any better than just not getting there at all. Right, right. So, Chuck, what are your other hangups on migration? My goal now is to persuade you to move over from WordPress to <laughs> Um, I, I mean, the, so, so the things that are hanging me up, one is, is that I have the, the biggest pain for me on WordPress, honestly, has been, I've, I've had to kind of hand modify a lot of stuff in the theme. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I set up a child theme and all that crap, but I don't, I, I have to go learn WordPress APIs and PHP in order yep. to do it. Yeah. And, and you're a Ruby guy. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I, I don't care. I I just want it to work. Yeah. But um, when it comes right down to it, it's just, it's complicated. And if I have some um, system for handling this stuff anyway, um, you know, and it's all HTML and it just generates the HTML and it's done. The other thing is, is that it'll be fast. You know, you get some SEO benefits from that. Um, Mm -hmm. It's static, you know, or at least the content will be, you know, for the, the podcast. The other thing is, is that it doesn't have to be that dynamic because we release episodes for each show once a week. Yeah. The the big change for me was like, I had always relied heavily on um, like either WordPress custom post types or like saving yeah. all sorts of custom metadata associated with And I'm with doing both of those. So in, I'll speak specifically to Hugo because it's the one I know. But so in Hugo, if I want to add a new type of content, I create a new directory in my content folder with whatever I want that to be called. So, you know, like, podcasts, if you know, I have like mm-hmm. articles and podcasts. And then if I want to style those differently, in the theme directory, I create another directory also called podcasts with two or three HTML files that say, here's right. how it should look. And that's it. No, no PHP hooks, no action hooks, no like eight different things you can configure the right way. And if you screw one up, that like breaks the whole loop. And then if you want to add custom data to those things, you literally just add a new key in your front matter up at the top of the markdown file with whatever you want that information to be. And you can reference it in your style theme somewhere. Things that used to take me hours in WordPress take me minutes in here. Yeah. 
it's, it's beautiful. It's just so easy and amazing. Um, there are, you know, definitely like the more dynamic things involve a little kind of working around, but that sort of stuff is so much easier. I'm, I'm never looking back. It's, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. I shouldn't say never cause you never know what will happen, but uh, <laughs> I've, it's the, one of the most like exhilarating technical decisions I've ever made. It's freed up so much time. I mean, that's the other thing is just dealing with all the customizations that I've made and, you know, is that going to wind up causing me problems? And I guess that comes down to what do those customizations do? You know, I'm, I'm, that's, sorry, that sounds like blindly stating the obvious, but I mean, what, <laughs> what, is, what is it that they um, deliver? Because quite often... Almost of all of them, it's, it's UI. Right, so exactly. So advertisements or how to suggest a topic or, you know, right. stuff like that. Yeah. So, so exactly. So some of those custom, those customizations can be like working around a problem with the architecture that you'll, you inherit. Mm -hmm. And some of them are purely kind of sugar for the UI. And so depending on which they are, there's, there's either a level of re-engineering them or, or actually not needing them. You know, it, it depends really where the, where the control lies when you, when you move across to a slightly different architecture, I think. Yeah. And I, I think, I think most of that, I mean, I've added extra fields and created custom post types for those, um, you know, with the extra fields. And yeah, I mean, for the most part, it's, it really is just, okay, this is more metadata for the, or more data on the episode so that I can, you know, put it in. And the only other concern I really have is that I don't actually write the show notes for the shows. And so my show notes person would have to be able to write Markdown or whatever format the data goes in. What format is that in now, Chuck? Uh, They just use the... Uh, WYSIWYG. Ah, okay. All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hawk Netlify's wares for a second here. If you went with Netlify, Chuck, they actually um, offer a, um, <laughs> a WYSIWYG system for editing your content that integrates with the GitHub content API and will auto-publish updates for you. You can set schedule ahead kind of things if you want, but it, uh, it basically pulls the front matter from the top of your file and, uh, or you can set up templates and it'll create a GUI-like form that someone can drop in and you know, highlight things to make them bold, do whatever you need to do without them having to know Markdown or Git. Yeah, that'd be nice. What I'm, what I'm wondering is mm-hmm. they put it in the WYSIWYG editor and then it pushes it to Git? Yeah, it, um, it, so you would set up a, like a, a special kind of like key secret combination in, uh, in GitHub that you provide uh-huh. to Netlify. And um, they use that to make changes to the, the build on your account. If you don't go with Netlify, if you're going with another vendor, or even if you do, um, forestry.io also provides a way to, um, to kind of have the same kind of thing. I recently set up a client on um, Jamstack, and that's what we ended up using for them. But it's the same principle. You just you log in, you get a visual thing. You can use keyboard shortcuts to make stuff bold and italic and drop in links if you want, or click the little buttons up at the top. And then it just syncs with your GitHub account, which in theory also triggers a fresh build and, uh, and you're off to the races. Or Bob's your uncle, I think. Is that it, Phil? You nailed it. Isn't it funny? You, uh, you kind of invite one Netlify person onto the, the podcast and then we <laughs> come along at once. <laughs> London buses. Yeah, sorry. I, um, I just really like... Phil, you had been talking about Jamstack for years before I finally like listened to it. And um, like I'd seen the stuff and I was like, oh, I don't want to learn another. I thought it was like just another like fly by night framework or something. But like having made the jump, it has just completely changed so much of my front end process. So I, I just, I get really like super passionate about this. Well, that's, that's lovely to hear. And, and yeah, I was talking about it for a long time, but I, 
I didn't have a good name for it. I think one point I called it short stack because it was shortening the stack of technologies you needed to, to, to learn. And also it made me think of pancakes and what's not to love about that. Um, I've, I've heard, you know, I've heard the terms uh, web serverless being touted around as well. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, Jamstack again has just kind of become this convenience term to, to mm -hmm. capture them all. But that's, that's really nice to hear that it's been a good experience for you, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's, that's Chuck, that's why I'm trying to sell you so hard. Like this is really, uh, it's, been a, it's been a big deal for me. Well, I, I see it as something that could simplify my life. It's definitely something that I want to play with. It also looks like that uh, Jekyll export isn't working. <laughs> oh, no. What was the thing? I'm trying to remember. I literally just did this two weeks ago because I am... Um, it it uh, ran my server out of space, so I'm working on that. But. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I, um, I had to export um, Pause New England, this animal rescue I work with, just, just made the jump and they had, you know, like a decade worth of content we had to get out. So, so Chuck, can you, um, I'm just wanting to workshop your specific use case for just, just a second, can you pull the content from your WordPress instances over, their con over the WordPress content API? Can you get a feed of your blog posts, in other words? Uh, yeah, I should be able to. Because if you can do that, then you probably don't need an exporter. You can actually go straight into building something with a static site generator that consumes those as part of the build. Um, Chris already mentioned 11T. Um, I did a tiny little proof of concept when people were getting a bit anxious about Medium, kind of closing their environment down a little bit, where I built out like a, a two-page example static site generator on 11T, which consumed the RSS feed from Medium. And for every article it found there, it you know, created your site from that. So you can actually use something like that to you know, ingest the content through a JSON feed or an RSS feed. And once you're in that world, then you can output these things in anything you like. So moving from one static site generator to another or doing anything with those files that you yield after that build, you, you're kind of, you get that control back and that's something then you can control. I should share that little example as well, I think. Yeah, I think so. And, and I'm, I'm talking about this, not knowing exactly when or if I'm going to do this, but I think it's helpful for people who are looking at this as an option and may want to convert their sites. And I may just wind up bugging Chris a whole bunch. <laughs> or Divya or, or you, Phil. Works. Happily. The jam spreads easily. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah. Um, I don't know if I know what the concern is going to be until I do it. Yeah, Chuck, I actually set up just like a local thing and played around with it a whole bunch. Um, well, that's kind of what I figure I'll wind up doing. And then when I have something I'm happy with, then I can just deploy it. Yeah. And it becomes very, very trivial to do, um, whether, you, whether you do it on your own server or through kind of a hosted provider like Netlify. It's, um, it's just really yeah. kind of straightforward. Yeah. Well, and all the content is basically in RSS feeds. So mm -hmm. if, yeah, if it came I'm, right down to it, I could import that way. I'm also now remembering, I think I ran into the same issue um, and ended up, um, which you're probably not going to want to do because it's obnoxious, but I exported the XML, like, you know, WordPress has their like native exporter thing. Uh -huh. So I exported that. I spun up a local or had a local WordPress instance just set up on my computer, like running on map or something that I uh, imported it into and then ran the, the Jekyll exporter there because it was local. So it didn't crash any sort of like memory restrictions right. like on my machine, which is super obnoxious and you shouldn't have to do. I would imagine you probably have the same problem I did, which is just a lot of content. And yeah, we have thousands of podcast episodes that we've published. Yeah. And I was working with, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of 
back articles and, and things like that. So yeah, the RSS thing sounds way more elegant though. So yeah. Well, if I can get the Jekyll export to work, then I'll probably go that way because I am pretty familiar with Jekyll. I also am not in love with my WordPress theme, so I may go find another HTML template that I like. I, yeah. I don't I don't know where to go find a good one. No, I ended up taking the default Hugo theme, like the one they use for their getting started tutorial, uh-huh. um, and then just ripped it way back, like tore out all of the CSS, all of the like... Oh, yeah markup around it and then had like a, an effectively a naked theme that I could build up on top of. Yeah. Um, but I'm also kind of a control freak like that. I understand most people just want something that works. No, I'm kind of a control freak too. I do have some themes off of Theme Forest, but I don't know if any of them will work because I haven't looked at what I purchased there for quite mm-hmm. a long time. Anyway, I've kind of hogged the mic now for a while. <laughs> um, hey, AJ, do you want to hog the mic for a minute? Well, I mean, you guys basically went through, I, it, I don't have much to add, but uh, I'm a big fan of static sites and I, I'm okay calling them static sites. I don't need to sugarcoat them in jam. <laughs> um, nice. Dad and, jokes uh, for days, AJ. Jokes for days. And I, I think what Netlify is doing is great. I, I really like this idea of, of simplifying. Uh, what, what I'd love to see, this is the request I have of our listeners really, is if you've got, if you've seen something that gives people the user friendliness of WordPress, but that is a static site generator, I want to hear about it. Because I think that, you know, these things like Hugo and whatnot, they exist, they're great. All we need is a pretty front end on top of them. You know, like Slack was just IRC with colors. You know, and all we need for for to, <laughs> to really, you know, because everybody complains about WordPress. Nobody's like, oh, man, I just love WordPress. I, well, I, that's not true. There are people that absolutely love it. But, the, you know, you hear people that are discovering these types of problems that, you know, Netlify is trying to solve and, and um, these static site generator type things are trying to solve. They, you know, it's, it's a big deal. And, and I think I think one of the, the biggest pieces is there's not a... Um, a really cohesive UI where it's like click, click, wissy wig, blah, blah, non-technical. So if anybody knows about that, I want to hear about it. Hey guys, let me tell you about Clubhouse. I swear I've used every project management software there is out there and I hated project management software. Now I have Clubhouse. Overall, it's simple and straightforward to use, but it has enough of the integrations and power features you need to get the job done without getting confusing. This means that I can use it and the non-technical members of my team can figure out what they need from it. It also makes it easy for me to zoom out and see what's going on overall before zooming back in and specifying more work that needs to be done or picking the next task for me to tackle. They integrate with all the systems that you'd expect and have a REST API for, well, the REST. If you go to HTTPS clubhouse.io slash JSJabber, you can get two months free instead of the standard 14-day trial for any team size. Once again, that's HTTPS clubhouse.io slash JSJabber. All right, well... Um, let's go ahead and do some picks. AJ, do you want to start us off? You know it, Chuck. So, first of all, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Prince Ali, Ali Ababwa, because he's mighty. <laughs> he's got like you know, if you're into exotic type ma- mammals, he's got a world class menagerie. Let me tell you. Um, no, I I just rewatched Aladdin. Um, with my wife, introduced her to it because she had not seen it. Like, poor what? child. Oh, yeah. 
I, I think they didn't translate it into Latvian or something. Or maybe it just culturally wasn't popular there. But anyway, I love Aladdin. I got the uh, Disney has these vinyl record sets. They're terrible, by the way. The, the sound quality on them is not what you'd expect from modern vinyl, but they're colorful. They're more like meant to be hung on the wall, but you can happen to listen to them. So I got the Aladdin soundtrack and then I got the Aladdin DVD and I just, I just love Aladdin. Like so many of the things that I say today are from like Aladdin, Emperor's New Groove and like two or three other movies that I just loved as a kid. And I just have held these expressions with me and it's fun to like rewatch these movies and be like, Hey, that's where I got that from. <laughs> um, so I, the the other thing I'm going to pick is I, I think I talked about this before that Node since version 10.12, which is fairly recent at the time of this recording, has proper key generation support for ECDSA and RSA keys. Um, it turns out it had support for ECDSA before, but it was under the EDDH, and you just had to take the you just had to use it quote like improperly, not as E. CDH, you could have just used it for ECDSA because it's all the same suite of stuff. Anyway, now it's got proper support and there's been something that's just been bugging me, which is how many different tools there are because there's a there's hundred different suites, you know, of, of elliptic curve cryptography and RSA cryptography that you have to pick and choose from in different formats, PKCS8 and PKCS1 and blah, 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 blah. And, and so anytime I do something with cryptography, it's like I have, to, I have to borrow from 16 different libraries to get a full flow of what I need to do from A to B. So I decided since one of the biggest missing pieces was now solved, now browsers and Node both can generate these key pairs, I, I decided to tackle the problem and, and create a suite that, that from scratch that's like zero dependency, lightweight code, it actually doesn't, it doesn't support the full myriad of suites. Like I basically hard coded just the suites that I need. So it's like really lightweight and fast. Not that speed is that important when you're converting between things, but it's like super lightweight and well contained and everything works together with itself. And the way that I did this was I found this tool called Hexfiend that allows me to do a binary diff between two files. So I was able to generate PIMs with OpenSSL and then debase64 encode them so that they were in the binary dir format and use Hexfiend. And then also there's, there's this tool ASN1JS, which is one of these things that I'm lamenting about, but it's full featured and it, and it can decode anything and it has all the different schemas for all the different suites in it. And there's an online parser. And so I was able to paste in these PIM files and take a look at what the byte sequences looked like and whatnot. And I was able to, you know, reverse engineer enough to start to understand the documentation. There was this hilarious tweet a week or two ago, somebody put up like, looking through code for hours saved me minutes of reading the documentation. But it turns out with some of these things, it's true because it's not that cut and dry. So anyway... The picks there that I'm actually picking at are Hexfiend and ASN1JS because they were so instrumental in me being able to like get this understanding of all these different suites and, and pare it down to what I needed. And if you're interested in the results of that, it's EcclesJS, EC, DSA, CSRJS, RashaJS, and RSACSR.js are the, the result of that labor. So anybody else that's got that headache and wants to solve it, or a similar one, those are good tools to use. And um, yeah. Very cool. Uh, Chris, what are your picks? 
so I have uh, three this week. Um, the first is I ended up um, last week writing a lightweight form validation script that just kind of augments what native HTML5 form validation gives you out of the box. Um, so if you don't want to have to configure a whole bunch of fields for different things, you just kind of want to take advantage of native HTML5 attributes like required max and min and, and things like that. And, you know, maybe some input types like email or, or number, but you want to provide a, a better kind of UI than what you get out of the box with native HTML5 form validation. This may be for you. Um, it's called Bouncer. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it uh, suppresses the native validation that would happen when it runs and uh, hooks on top of it and just kind of does its thing. It also exposes a couple of... Um, custom events that you can hook into to do different things. So for example, if you wanted to maybe sub- submit a form by Ajax, you could stop the form from, uh, it provides you a hook to stop the form from submitting when someone hits click submit and, or clicks the submit button rather, and then we'll emit an event with all the form data in it so you can take it and kind of submit it your own way or, or do whatever. So um, that's up on GitHub. I'll toss a link in the show notes so you guys can check it out. Um, feedback welcome. I've already gotten some fantastic pull requests to shore some things up and add a couple of features. So love those. The second, and I'm going to introduce these two together. So if like me, you're someone who either like runs your own business or you're a freelancer or um, you in some way code for money, um, even I guess technically if, it, if it's inside a company, two folks who have helped me tremendously in terms of making more money doing this are Philip Morgan at philipmorganconsulting.com and Jonathan Stark over at jonathanstark.com. Um, they both approach the same problem from two different angles and I think in conjunction um, can help you a ton. So Philip is really all about how counterintuitively, the more you narrow your focus in terms of what you do for people, the more in demand you actually become. And so I think there's kind of this mindset where if you want to be super marketable for even for companies, you should try and do a little bit of a lot of different things. We put a high value on being kind of this master of all things. In reality, like in all other professions, you usually want to go with the guy or, or, or woman who specializes in the thing you're doing. Like, if you want a really nice bathroom remodel, you're not going to hire the guy who's dabbled in a little bit of everything. You're probably going to choose the contractor who specializes in bathrooms if you can afford it. Similarly, those people tend to command higher prices and have schedules that are booked way farther out. And the same actually ends up holding true for code. I used to kind of just be a generalist developer. And I found the more I focused not just on JavaScript, but specifically on a flavor of it, and in my case, vanilla. And Divya, I think you've probably even seen some of this with Vue. Like the more you've doubled down on that, Definitely. The, kind of the bigger things have grown for you. So Philip writes a lot about this, how to figure out what your specialization might be, how to get a better sense for kind of the kinds of problems you can solve and the things people value. Um, he has a whole bunch of free resources, some paid stuff, super recommend. And then similarly, Jonathan Stark talks about how hourly billing in our work is um, kind of a trap that cheats you out of money and devalues you actually getting better at your skills. There's kind of this inverse thing that happens where the better you get, the more value you, valuable you become. But it also means you finish stuff sooner. And if you're charging hourly, then you end up costing people less money, even though you give them better stuff than if you're kind of earlier in your career. And there's kind of an upper ceiling to how much you can raise your hourly rate. Um, so he talks about a whole bunch of other smarter, more creative ways you can package package your services and sell what you do that ultimately results in you making more money. Um, and I've had really great results taking advantage of his advice too. Um, so recommend both of those if, uh, if you're someone who does this kind of work for money and wants to make more of it. 
Yeah, both of them um, were panelists. I haven't paid much attention to Freelancer Show, I'll admit. Uh, both of them were free, uh, panelists on the Freelancer Show. And I'm pretty sure that Jonathan still shows up on there. I, I don't remember if, if Philip retired from the show or not. But. Mm, yeah, I think you're right about, um, about both of those. But uh, yeah, been, been, I just really like, love what they do. Yeah, and they're both terrific guys. I mean, I was on the show for the first, what, four years, five years that it was running and uh, got to know them very well. And they really know what they're talking about. Uh, they both have books, uh, the positioning manual and hourly billing is nuts. And uh, yeah, definitely worth checking out. Yeah, free newsletters are great too if you want to yep. start at $0. Yeah, that too. All right, I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. Uh, first of all, uh, I'm going to pick a new social network that I've kind of been playing with lately. It's called Mastodon. And it's a distributed... So you kind of have like the local server and then you have the federated uh, system. And so I'm, I've actually followed people on servers that I didn't uh, set up my account on. Anyway, it's been kind of fun to play with. Um, and, and I'm finding more and more people are on it. So in fact, it wouldn't shock me if somebody goes, oh, I'm using that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been kind of fun to get on. It's, how do I describe it? Um, if you use TweetDeck back in the day before, I can't remember if Twitter purchased them or shut them down. But anyway, it was one of the two. It, it kind of has the, like the, the columns for, for each thread that you're following. And then on top of that, you can follow people on other servers and things like that. So anyway, I've really been kind of digging it. It was funny because the one that I joined, which is mastodon.technology, uh, was set up by somebody who we've actually had as guests on the show. So, but yeah, just connected with them, figured some of it out. It's pretty simple and I really like it. So I'm going to pick that. Um, and then this week is Thanksgiving in the United States as we record this. Um, and I love me some turkey. So um, even if you're not in the U.S., uh, go buy a turkey, throw it in the oven for a while, make sure it's cooked, and enjoy. Divya, I, do you have some so, picks for us? No? Yes, I do. I, I, I do. I have a couple of picks. I, I just wanted to rebut with I really dislike turkey. <laughs> and um, I, I'm... Well, I guess as a transplant, I have embraced Thanksgiving, but not the Thanksgiving foods because I find them incredibly bland and turkey being one of them because it takes so long to cook and it always ends up dry. And just to make sure that it's moist requires a huge effort, amount of effort. But that's me on my soapbox. So well, not if you're following Chuck's it's... recipe, though. Re Chuck just, oh, just yes, highlighted so a just... foolproof recipe for cooking turkey. Well, I'm going to have to. Yeah, get sure I did. Recipe. No, I didn't. <laughs> let, 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 let me let, let me explain how you do this, okay? Explain it. So first of all, we have one of those pans with a little rack on it, so it holds it up. Yeah. Off the pan. And then you have to baste it every few hours. No, we do not baste at my house. You don't baste it that much. No, and they they turn out moist. They turn out really what? moist. So so what you do is you, okay, everybody's going to be like, dang, and then they're going to be like, oh, Christmas is next week. So. <laughs> I'm still I'm still helping you folks out. So anyway, you uh, can pull the skin up off of the bird um, from the you know where the neck is because they chop the neck off, and you can get your hand all the way up in it usually, and it'll stretch up under your hand. So what you do is after you've done that, you know your hand gets a little bit gross, but that's fine. Then what you do is you get one of those little spatula things that you use to spread frosting and stuff, and you get a whole bunch of butter. And you stick it in there and you spread it around inside of it. Put some spices on it. So, you know, some basil or oregano or I usually put some rosemary on it. 
you can also do it with olive oil if if butter isn't your speed. Uh, both of those work fine. And then when you bake it or when you uh, roast it or whatever the term is, whenever you put it in the oven and make it cook, you um, put it in breast side down because most of the juices come out of the dark meat, which is on the back, the wings and the... That's, that's basically right? like spatchcocking it, isn't it? Because when you spatchcock it, you kind of put it breast side down as well. I've never heard that term, but sure. <laughs> okay. But yeah, so that, that's how we do it at my house. And usually you wind up with a ton of drippings underneath, but you also then wind up with the juice kind of in, in the breast because it's the, the turkey breast that tends to get dry. I mean, if you cook it too long, everything will get dry. But yeah, then, then you just check it periodically with your thermometer and you're good. Cool. Who would have known? Learn I, about, I made your life better. Learn about technology and <laughs> Thanksgiving food cooking. So on this stop podcast. shop this podcast. Yeah. I've heard that um, frying it keeps it moist too, but I haven't tried that. So. Oh, what a pain! Um, I'm actually making an 11 pound pork butt, Cuban Ooh, style. I'm coming to your house. <laughs> it would be great. I'll be in Chicago um, tomorrow. All right, you're 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 more than welcome. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> my picks are not Thanksgiving related at all. My first pick is called is an article called Fear, Trust, and JavaScript, which is a like a strong post about types and functional programming and how um, most of the JavaScript we write is always good, bound to fail because we are we as humans and as developers tend to make mistakes and JavaScript is also very a lot like allows us to make those mistakes and so in order to circumnavigate or circumvent that um, you would have to use a bunch of things like TypeScript. Um, and linting and so on. And so this is a very opinionated article that goes in detail on those things. And the second one, my second pick is a post called Women's Pockets Are Inferior, which is just an article or a visualization by Pudding.cool talking about how um, there's a disparity in pocket sizes, <laughs> which I think if any of you know women out there, they, they always tend to complain about pocket sizes or the lack of pockets sometimes, like fake pockets in, in women's pants or, or clothing. And so it's a really great visual that shows the proof, the data is in the pudding, that women's pockets are indeed inferior, I don't know, because of fashion standards or whatever. Um, and then the last pick is a post that I just read this morning called Debt a Love Story, which is actually really depressing. <laughs> um, it's just this long post about, to, uh, it's an interview that was done by Wealthsimple, which is like, I don't exactly know what they do, but it talks about, I think Wealthsimple does wealth management or investment. Um, and it's an article about these, this couple talking about their debt and how ridiculous of a situation that they're in. And it's honestly, like, I'm not perfectly great at managing my finances, but reading this article made me feel like a genius. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, how are these people... Um, it's just the, the, the crazy insanity of how people manage money. So it's just this couple, they put money on credit cards, they have student loans, and then they just keep getting more credit cards to put loans on. It's, it's insane. If you want just a little bit of a motivation or, or just something to make you feel just a little better about the way that you manage your money, unless you are basically this person, in which case I really don't know what to say. But yeah, those are my, those are my picks. Nice. Very nice. Phil, do you have some picks for us? Sure. Yeah, I do. Um, so I've got 
Well, so first of all, um, this was a pick that I wasn't expecting, but since you were talking about roasting turkeys uh, and you mentioned the juices flowing out into the pan, dripping is my first is my first pick. Now, dripping is what we would call it in England, the fat and juices that run out of the meat. Uh, in, I'm from the north of England, and what we used to do years and years ago is we would save that. We would put it in the fridge. It would solidify into something similar to lard, and then we would spread it on toast like monsters, and it's fabulous. Oh. Um, it's, there's, there's nothing okay about it, but yet it's so, it's so wonderful. So that's just a little, little nod to my northern roots, uh, the Yorkshireman in me coming through. Um, now, I failed to in mention. America, the way we do that is we just cook the bacon first and then cook the other stuff after. <laughs> cook the bacon, cook everything else in the grease. Yeah. God bless America. Yeah, what, <laughs> what we do with the dripping uh, from the turkey is we just add cornstarch and a little bit more spice and we, we make it into gravy. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a careful balance. You've got to find a way to get both. But, uh, but yes, yes, dripping is my first one, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for some judgment that's coming my way from people uh, in the future, I'm sure. I, I'm just going to drink it on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. All right, fair enough. You're going out with a bang this year. I'm, I'm impressed. Um, okay, so then on to my other picks. Um, I've, got, I've got one proper pick that I've kind of arrived at in a strange route. So uh, the pick is actually a movie, which I'm going to get to in a second. But the reason I really love it is actually I was thinking about, about some things that I saw at a conference recently. So I, I was at Coldfront Conference in Copenhagen last week, which I really enjoyed. But one of the talks there was by uh, Jacob Rossi, who's a product manager at Oculus. Uh, and he, was, he did a talk uh, about web VR and some of the technologies that are coming, coming there, which really blew my mind because you know, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about you know, wearing headsets and VR and all those kind of things. But he showed, showed some stuff that was amazing. And one of the things along the way was, was talking about how you know, if some of this content is coming down the wire from some kind of web server somewhere, you know, the frame rate that you need so that you don't get sick is quite high. And one of the things that the, the software can now do is if there's a dropped frame, rather than doing any kind of buffering or having a jump, you could use machine learning to interpolate between the last frame and the next frame and fill in that frame on the fly, which completely blew my mind that that was something that was possible, particularly in, you know, some of these like small bits of hardware that you can wear on your head. Anyway, so that, that, was, that was one thing that kind of piqued my interest. But then along the way at the same conference, I was also hearing um, quite a lot about TensorFlow.js, which mm -hmm. is the JavaScript library that kind of sits in front of things like TensorFlow, the, you know, the, the big library, open source library for allowing machine learning. So TensorFlow.js is, I still find really rather daunting, although some of the examples I've seen from people who are building things with this have been really impressive. But that kind of touches on some of the same kind of area of doing machine learning to generate images, to kind of interpolate between images and generate images and what have you. So all of those things were going around in my mind when last night, actually, I saw a movie called They Shall Not Grow Old. I don't know if anyone's come across this movie, but this is um, from Peter Jackson of The Hobbit and similar films fame. And that's, this film's been made um, in conjunction with the BBC. And it's looking at tons and tons of archive footage from the First World War, really you know, crummy, low resolution, grainy, low frame rate footage in black and white that you can just about make out. And they've gone through this process of restoring all of this footage and stitching it together in a way that they've clearly done some 
some machine learning to interpolate between frames, bring the frame rate up, bring the resolution up and colorize it. So you end up with this incredible full color HD rendering of the First World War that they then added sound effects with like Foley artists and what have you to put, to really make it real. They've got lip readers in there. So they're, they're then reenacting the, the, the audio. So you, it brings these characters to life. And then over the top of that, they've got interviews from the 60s from people who'd survived from the First World War. So it's this incredible story of the First World War in something like high you know, high definition footage that makes it really real. So it was just a wonderful thing to watch. I'd really recommend it. It's getting a movie, um, like a cinema release, but it's also available on BBC iPlayer for those fortunate enough to get it there. I thought it was just incredibly moving, but it also was interesting that it was echoing some of those technologies I'd seen just the day before. So those, those are my picks. Is BBC awesome. iPlayer available outside of the UK? I just assumed it wasn't. No, sadly, it's not. Um, yeah. It used to be that uh, you know, some you know, naughty people would get some kind of a VPN. A VPN, uh, yeah. But then I think they, they shut that door when they realized people were doing that. I wish they'd just let you pay for it from... Ex- yeah, from I've actually had a, I had a conversation with Ed Yabra, who's on the View Core yeah. team about that, where yeah. I was like, hey, you guys should have... Because I, I think it'd be a great revenue model for the BBC, just in totally. general. Yeah, totally. There must be some reason that they don't do it, but I, I, no I don't know. Idea. Maybe they sell their shows to other networks. I know they do for, for some things, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, maybe. I know lots of people who are living outside of the UK who would dearly love access to it. It is great. Yeah, we, we need to increase our privilege here outside the UK. Um, <laughs> well, one thing that I usually ask and I fail to ask it is, where do people find you all online? So for me, uh, on Twitter, you can find me at, at Phil Hawksworth. That's P-H-I-L-H-A-W-K-S-W-O-R-T-H. It's nice and easy for me to remember. It's just my name. Um, or you can find me at hawksworks.com. It's a static site. Uh, who'd have thought it? Um, so that's, that's Hawksworks, and Works is spelled with an X because I was trying to be cool when I registered my domain name a few decades ago, um, little realizing that I'd have to spell it for everybody for the rest of my life. But, but that's where you can find me. Um, and you can find me at ShortDiv. I'm ShortDiv everywhere, um, on GitHub, on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, I'm not on Snapchat uh, by, by choice. But, um, and my website is, short, is just shortdiv.com. All right. And you can also catch Divya on Views on View. That is correct. All right. Well, thank you both for coming. This was, this was fun. I got a little bit more involved than sometimes I, I do. This was great. Yeah. yeah thanks, thanks for having for... us. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it was fun. Sorry for ranting for such a long time, but luckily <laughs> we got to the important stuff and got to talk about dripping at the end. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And bacon, both very important. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. <laughs>